0: This is episode four of Spaces of Solitude, a podcast series from the Pathologies of Solitude project at Queen Mary University of London. I'm Heta Howes. In this series, we're looking at the history of solitude, particularly as it relates to places and experiences. Each episode is curated by one of the research team on the project. In this episode, I'm taking a walk through the city with Charlie Williams. We've taken shelter from what's quite a dark and rainy night in Tooting Common. Charlie, we've been recording material for this series since right before the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown. So walking with you here in Tooting Common at night in the city feels pretty liberating to be honest. Why was it important to you to do this episode on the city?
1: Well, I suppose the city's kind of this place of great paradoxes. It's very rich, it's poor, it's liberating, very stifling, and it's intensely social, but also a very kind of lonely and alienating place. The German sociologist George Simmel kind of famously said, no one ever feels as lonely or as, or as deserted as they are in the metropolitan crush of persons. You know, that's a kind of very classic idea of loneliness in the city, where the crowd sort of turns the individual into nothing, or the individual gets lost in the crowd. But In this podcast, we're also going to be thinking about the kind of positive aspects of solitude in the city, and looking at how solitude can also be a precondition for certain types of sociality and certain types of community.
0: I love that idea of the metropolitan crush, actually, that's a great quote, It's been interesting because we started recording these podcasts when it was much lighter, but we powered through after the lockdown came, doing interviews remotely instead. And now, once again, we're walking here together, albeit at a distance, and it does feel quite strange.
1: Certainly, it's a pleasure to be walking around with friends and colleagues again in the city. Um, But I think the pandemic has really kind of reshaped sociality for so many people and for lots of people the lockdown was an incredibly lonely experience for others it, it was impossible to find solitude and you know we're here standing next to the park and it's been interesting to see how the park has become this kind of interesting and important space for people to meet, interact in a kind of safe distanced way but also just to kind of be around the community
0: So it's quite important for this podcast that we're in the city and it's at night, but it's also quite important that we're walking, isn't it? Why are we walking?
1: Yeah, well, I guess we're walking because, well, obviously, that's one of the great ways to explore a city. But it's also one of the excellent ways to kind of be alone in the city. And and lots of the great literary descriptions of cities are written by people kind of travelling through them, moving around. And that sense of movement is so, such a part of the city. But it also kind of gives the writer a, a, a distance from the city, the spaces and the, the people that they're observing.
0: Well, talking of great writers, here's Charles Dickens walking the streets of London at night.
2: The restlessness of a great city and the way in which it tumbles and tosses before he can get to sleep formed one of the first entertainments offered to the contemplation of us houseless people. After all seemed quiet, if one cab rattled by, half a dozen would surely follow. Intoxicated people appeared to be magnetically attracted towards each other, so that we knew when we saw one drunken object staggering against the shutters of a shop that another drunken object would stagger up before five minutes were out to fraternise or fight with it. At length... These flickering sparks would die away, worn out. The last veritable sparks of waking life trail from some late pieman or hot potato man, and London would sink to rest. And then the yearning of the houseless mind would be for any sign of company, any lighted place, any movement, anything suggestive of anyone being up, nay, even so much as awake. Awake.
0: It's autumn now, and we're in quite deep dark, pretty dismal dark as well as it's a rainy evening. When I spoke to Matthew Beaumont earlier in the year, it was in early summer and the nights were much lighter for much longer. But there was definitely an odd feeling on the streets as we were at the height of lockdown. We did manage to night walk together in a way, but several miles apart. Matthew Beaumont is professor of English literature at UCL and has written a book, Nightwalking, A Nocturnal History. Nightwalking is quite a new concept for me. As a woman, the streets of London at night don't always feel especially enticing. So I asked him to explain the concept of nightwalking to me.
3: Anyone who really, for its own sake, rather than in order to get from A to B, goes out at night on foot is, in my book, a night walker. And it's a tradition that goes all the way back to, well, at least the the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages it was, it was criminalised, that activity, because it meant necessarily that you were breaking a curfew. So, a statute was passed in the late 13th century, which specifically targeted the so-called common nightwalker. And what that basically meant was that it was trying to criminalise people who were vagrant. Uh, or migrants from the countryside people who'd come to cities not just london but other cities looking for work when they'd been thrown off the land probably as a result of enclosures either that or they were they were prostitutes they were sex workers and they were loitering about the streets after dark looking for trade so the nightwalker was originally in other words a legal term subsequently it became less and less important that legal significance. The curfew was lifted, a kind of nightlife increasingly, particularly during the eighteenth century, emerged in cities like London and Paris and other places. And instead poets, painters, bohemians of one kind or another, sort of took on the mantle of the night walker. In other words, they went out in the streets of the city at night in order to well in order to to find a, a kind of different sort of city. Uh, city that they wouldn't find in the day, one with different rhythms, different energies, uh, but also I think to find a different sort of self.
0: I'm really taken I think by this idea of seeing the city in a new light or or dark um, and also by this idea of um, discovering yourself. I mean you night walk, is that what it means for you? Is it about sort of self discovery or solitude? It it is,
3: I suppose you know I started walking at night when I was in my late teens after I left school I went to Italy for six weeks and travelled on my own and I sort of landed up in Rome initially and had no money at all and so ended up sleeping on, you know, on the station platforms and on park benches and so I ended up doing a lot of loitering around stations and trying to keep warm at night by walking. And I realised in a way that I'd never done in London where I grew up just how fascinating cities are at night and just how different they are and how how unsettling they can be how how thrilling how how you know i mean obviously i, I was privileged I and mean it goes without saying that as a as a young man uh, i was in a really privileged position in many many ways I and mean if i'd been a young woman loitering around stations in the middle of the night uh, in Rome in my late teens, then uh, I'd have been much, much more vulnerable. But it was really exciting for me and I suppose that was the origin to my own interest in it and certainly I've done it ever since, sporadically. Sometimes with friends, sometimes on my own.
0: Are there times when you want it to be on your own for sort of specific reasons?
3: Yeah, I mean, at, at periods of particular crisis, I suppose. it's It's a really good way of of getting out of yourself and, and of escaping routines, domestic routines, professional routines, and of yeah, giving yourself space and time to think. So, yeah, when, I, when my marriage broke down, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, I did quite a lot of night walking, um, and I found it a great solace, in fact in various various ways. And in that respect, I was not unlike, I was sort of, I suppose, semi-consciously echoing, in fact, the experience of, of Dickens, of Charles Dickens, who was all his life a, a nightwalker in London and indeed other cities, but who entered a period of particularly kind of frenzied and manic nightwalking when his marriage was was breaking down in the late 1850s.
0: I'm glad you mentioned Dickens because he's such an interesting character in your book *Nightwalking: and Nocturnal History and we've heard an extract from Dickens' essay on night walking. How does he characterise it and does this feed into his fiction? Because obviously he as an author was wandering around at night and then sort of perhaps seeing characters that he would then appear in his books. <laughs>
3: Yeah, it appears in lots of his novels, this motif of night walking, of the night walker. The very best account of it is, is the one in his short uh, piece under the guise of the commercial, the uncommercial traveller uh, called Night Walks. It's a composite, really, of various different night walks that he did around uh, the time this marriage was breaking down in, in, in the late 1850s. And apart from anything else, apart from giving us a really fascinating glimpse into his own psyche I think Dickens's psyche it, it provides a kind of a kind of rhythm analysis if you like of of the city at night.
0: Presumably in the history of night walking the introduction of streetlights might have shifted things a little bit as well.
4: Yes
3: very much so so street lighting really uh, public street lighting took off in the late 17th century. Um, so from the late 17th century yeah, lighting is really one of the great kind of public lighting is really one of the great lubricants of the of the nocturnal economy and of the and of the shopping, the economy of consumption as well. So it really coincides with the the appearance of places like you know Oxford Street, other bits of central London, say, as central shopping districts at dusk and in the early hours of the evening after dark, shops would be filled with candles in order to illuminate the, the commodities and people would promenade and great crowds would pass up and down the streets and there'd be a huge mix of people, not just affluent middle class and upper class consumers, but you know, people who might parasitically be able to make money from them by picking their pockets or trading their bodies or whatever it, it might be. Uh, and the night walker we find amongst those crowds really, I suppose, lurking about, in, in effect, homeless. Um, but also in the form of these bohemian poets recording the, the underside of the city and, and in some ways celebrating it but in other ways uh, bewailing it and critiquing it. So someone like Oliver Goldsmith, for example, is absolutely brilliant in the 18th century at exposing the contradictions of the city in the way in which London, despite its great boast to be this huge... Imperial city at the very cutting edge of civilization is actually one with a vast population of the poor who are forced to sleep on the steps of the, of the rich and uh, who, uh, who are really left out of the city in the day.
0: We heard an extract um, before this interview from Dickens's Night Walks essay, which we have talked a little bit about already. Um, I'm really struck, though, by... We've been talking about solitude, about the looking for connection that we hear in that quotation, people who are restless, looking to find other people who might be awake at night. Is there a sense in which Dickens or other writers are looking for connection through this practice, as well as solitude?
3: Yes, I think that's very well put. One of the moving things about that essay by Dickens is precisely what you're alluding to, is this sense that there's a community of people who don't have a community, who aren't part of a community, who are excluded from the community, who are looking for a sense of community. And it's a very specific sense of community, I think. It's, it's one that doesn't necessarily entail too much mutual social responsibility in the way that, I don't know, a, a family does or... Uh, other forms of community do. A church congregation does, or a, or a, a workplace does, for example. It's a, it's a community of really rather atomized, solitary individuals who derive a certain distant comfort, I think, from the presence of one another, even though they don't get become intimate with one another. And I think that's exactly what Dickens goes out looking for at that time of his life, one of, one of extreme stress and great sadness, in fact. And he encounters all these other figures who are looking for something else, who are, who are looking not to feel lost, but who don't quite want to be found either. I think it's a really interesting dynamic. And certainly I've, you know, night walks that I've done, I've encountered people you know, who might almost have walked out of the pages of, of Dickens's uh, essay, in fact, and who you share, as well as a sort of slight sense of mutual suspicion and fear, perhaps you share a sense of, I don't know, a consolation in, in, in one another's presence.
5: On Broadway, about me young careless feet... Linger along the garish street above a hundred shouting signs, shed down their bright, fantastic glow upon the merry crowd and lines of moving carriages below. Oh, wonderful is Broadway! Only my heart, my heart is lonely. Desire, naked, linked with passion, goes trotting by in brazen fashion from playhouse. Cabaret and in the rainbow lights of Broadway blaze, all gay without, all glad within. As in a dream, I stand and gaze at Broadway, shining Broadway, only my heart, my heart is lonely.
0: That was On Broadway by Claude McKay, published in 1922. Leo Coleman is an anthropologist who has written on urban solitude. I spoke to him about his writing last November when sitting in an airless room in London which felt far from perilous. So there's an inclination, I think, to talk about the city as a lonely place, somewhere where people are sort of all mixed up together but find it difficult to make meaningful connections with those around them. Is this view a prevailing one? Has it always been around or is it new?
4: I think in the 19th century, people started to think about the industrial city because it was a new kind of place. And you start to have sociologists and reformers writing about the particular dangers of the city, just dangers of personal, psychological, and social disorder. A lot of that is focused on the pathologies that are associated with loneliness, new experiences of isolation.
0: What is it about the 19th century specifically that creates this idea of loneliness, or sort of modern idea of loneliness?
4: It's the industrial city. The industrial city is a new phenomenon in Europe, uh, comprised of tens of thousands of people coming to the city as migrants for work, um, taking advantage of new opportunities, of social interaction. And in the 19th century, in London at least... More people die in the city every year than are born in it. So it is a unique phenomenon of migration and uh, new populations being created.
0: And the thinkers that you're working with from the 19th century, do they see solitude as this really negative idea, sort of the discontent, the disconnected person? Or is there any sort of positive ways of thinking about solitude?
4: I think in the, from the very beginning, there's a back and forth between different perspectives on solitude. People are very concerned about the political and social possibilities that are created by new kinds of interactions between people who would never have met before. They're also worried about psychological consequences. Someone like the German sociologist Georg Zimmel argued that People living in the cities have a thin, instrumental relationship with each other. They don't necessarily create enduring bonds. But he was also really fascinated by the new freedoms of the city, by individual opportunities to pursue desires and passions and forms of art and culture that had never existed before.
0: Is loneliness invented in the 19th century?
4: Oh, certainly not. Loneliness is something that has always been experienced, but it's the social aspects of loneliness that I think change. I think being alone in a city where you are aware of millions of people around you and also aware of their indifference towards you can be quite difficult.
0: Yeah, and you talk about encounter quite a lot, this idea that you can kind of be on your own, but around other people and having an encounter with them, but not necessarily talking with them. Is there something quite comforting sometimes about being around others in the city?
4: For myself, in my own work, I'm very interested in the positive aspects of urban solitude as a social phenomenon, not just as an experience that you have inside your own head, but as something that is constituted by your awareness of other people and the kinds of places that you can be in. If you go to a a pub or a, a cafe and you sit by yourself, maybe you read a book, that's a different kind of experience of solitude than the mental isolation that so worried people in the 19th century.
0: Could you give me an example?
4: I did my field research in Delhi in 2005, and then, it's no longer there, there was an old restaurant from the 60s that had once been a place where people went to dance and dine and really enjoy themselves. And by the time I was there, it was pretty shabby, uh, a, a little dark, a little off the beaten path, and it was places where particularly... People who worked in the neighbouring shops, mostly men, could gather after work and unwind a little bit. But it was very quiet. It wasn't a place of, of buzzing conversation and music playing. It was a place of reflection, a place you could go to be alone with your thoughts. And that was where I started to think about being alone together.
0: So you kind of live in New York. You've written about New Delhi. Are there ways in which different cities create different kinds of loneliness?
4: Every city has its own character. That's something that writers and artists and filmmakers have known for a very long time. It matters whether you set your film in New York or New Delhi or Los Angeles. Is it because of the physical form of the city? Part of me wants to say, yes, New York is a very rational city. It's very gridded. It's difficult to lose yourself there. Whereas a city that's more sinuous and networked and expansive, a city like New Delhi, which is just geographically vast, not bounded by a river or a coastline, definitely gives you a sense of uh, distance and possibility and also vast and somewhat scary opportunities that you might not otherwise encounter. That said, I wouldn't want to push too hard on those sorts of comparisons. Every city is also made distinct by histories and social facts, how Uh, the kinds of workers who live there, the kinds of people who build homes there, the kinds of homes that they live in. These are facts that can't be compared on a one-to-one basis, but they create textures of difference that you can experience.
0: Leo Coleman. What about London, Charlie? Is it a lonely city?
1: That's a good question. For me, I moved to London in my early 20s, and I was just out of university and lots of kind of friends and people my age were doing the same thing so at that time it was a kind of very bustling, exciting, big new place to be and and it wasn't really lonely at all but I guess that kind of newness always fades, people come and go and you certainly feel people's absence in a very kind of different way in a big city And, and especially when there's so much going on around you you kind of can feel that sense of aloneness quite strongly in a city
0: i recognize that feeling very well i also like you moved to london in my early 20s for the hustle and bustle and i suppose in what you're saying there the city's always changing as well isn't it
1: oh definitely you know people are always coming and going and they're changing the city as well as they come and as they go and you know the city it, it opens itself up in different ways to different people a newcomer to the city their their experience is going to be shaped by what they know, who they know, but also factors such as race and class and gender. And we're going to talk next about Sam Selvon's Lonely Londoners, which we just simply had to include in this podcast. It's a classic portrait of London in the post-war period, and it's told through the lives of Windrush migrants who arrived in London in the
5: 1940s and 50s. The old Moses, standing on the banks of the Thames, sometimes he think he sees some sort of profound realization in his life, as if all that happened to him was experience that make him a better man, as if now he could draw apart from any hustling and just sit down and watch other people fight to live under the kif-kif laughter behind the ballad and the episode, the war happening the summer is hearts he could see a great aimlessness, a great restless swaying movement that leaving you standing in the same spot, as if a forlorn shadow of doom fall on all the spades in the country, as if he could see the black faces bobbing up and down in the millions of white strained faces, everybody hustling along the strand, the spades jostling in the crowd, bewildered, hopeless. As if on the surface, things don't look so bad. But when you go down a little, you bounce up a kind of misery and pathos and a frightening, what? He don't know the right word, but he have the right feeling in his heart.
0: I'm really pleased to be joined by Sashila Nasta, Professor of Modern and Contemporary Literature at Queen Mary, University of London. Thank you so much for joining us in lockdown. We've just heard a really evocative extract from Sam Selvon's Lonely Londoners, and I'm particularly struck hearing it back by the sense of movement, of sort of aimless wandering, but also of being fixed in one spot and feeling quite isolated, even though in a jostling crowd. When I was reading the novel, um, I really got the sense of what it might be like to experience the city in this way, and I wanted to start by asking you Is the experience Selvon creates here particular, do you think, to being a newcomer to the city and perhaps especially to being, as he describes it, one of the black faces bobbing up and down in the millions of white strained faces?
6: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you ask that, I mean, because there are two questions there. One is the being a newcomer to the city and the other is being a black migrant in the city, which was a particular element of that experience that Sam Selvon was writing about in the 1950s, as he talked about the experiences of the Windrush generation of black male migrants, primarily in the city. I think the book is about both things. The passage we've just heard comes from the end of The Lonely Londoners, and it comes at a point when the main character, Moses, has really begun to feel like he's had enough of listening to stories from each newcomer as they arrive at Waterloo. He's heard them all before. They're still trapped, in a sense, in his basement room or in similar basement rooms. And there's this sense of constant movement by the stories they tell, which they tell about the city that they're just discovering, kind of ending in a sort of bleakness. I suppose the newcomer, any newcomer who arrives in a city may bond in a hostel or a hotel or in a situation where they meet other people through telling stories of their encounters. It's, it's a new world that they're discovering and that bonds them through the language and the stories they tell. I think what Sam Selvon is particularly doing is creating what he calls ballads, the stories these boys tell, um, as a way of creating a sense of community in what is actually quite an alien and alienating world.
0: I love that idea of ballads, and it's so apt that you should bring up storytelling, because as you say, the kind of novel revolves around different people's stories. So in that vein, who was Sam Selvon, and who are the characters that he's exploring and presenting to us in the novel? Well, Sam Selvon
6: was one of a group, as it happened, of major Caribbean writers who came to London during the 1950s or just before. Amongst them were people like George Lamming, um, with whom he travelled by chance on the boat, where they fought over a typewriter. They were both trying to finish their first novels. V.S. Naipaul, who's of course very well known, Wilson Harris, Andrew Solke, Roy Heath. There were a whole group of them and they didn't actually paradoxically come as a group. They didn't know each other because they came from separate islands. And in fact, what happened was that they discovered themselves as writers quite often and the group and the Caribbean community when they met in London. And Sam Selvon was an East Indian Trinidadian who'd actually worked as a journalist in Trinidad um, before the war and during the war and had actually started writing pieces in the Trinidad Guardian, under various pseudonyms and also had some of his poems and short stories read out on what was a major BBC programme called Caribbean Voices where many of these writers actually met for the first time in the corridors of the BBC and they earned tiny bits of money for the broadcast which went across the seas back to the Caribbean, I think it was on Sunday afternoons.
5: It have people living in London who don't know what's happening in the room next to them, far more the street, or how other people living. London is a place like that. It divide up in little worlds, and you stay in the world you belong to, and you don't know anything about what's happening in the other ones, except what you read in the papers. Them rich people who does live in Belgravia and Knightsbridge, and up in Hampstead, and them other plush places, they would never believe what it's like in a grim place like Harrow Road. On Notting Hill.
0: The loneliness in Selvon's novel, I think, feels quite unique. You've got this real sense of community and busyness, lots of voices crowding in on the reader, but then real flashes of isolation, which I actually found quite hard to read, um, particularly, I suppose, in lockdown. Mm. So you've got Moses standing by the Thames, which we started with, having this kind of lonely epiphany. In what ways are these lonely Londoners lonely or solitary?
6: I think, again, it, it's a kind of double kind of loneliness or or maybe, you know, there's so many layers to the loneliness and then actually it's, it's really important that it's called the Lonely Londoners and not the Black Londoners or the Black Lonely Londoners because I think Sam is really pointing to a much broader sense of atomization in a kind of modern city just after the war, um, a city trying to pick itself up. Um, he's not only talking about black characters, although, of course, they are the dominant figures, and I'll talk about those in a minute. But he is also talking about the Poles. He's talking about people, women who have lost their husbands in the war. He's talking about poverty. And he's talking about all these rooms, as he says, kind of pushed up against one another where people don't even know what they're doing in the next, next door. So there's a kind of broad sense of this kind of modern exile and city bit like T.S. Eliot's city. It's an unreal city. It's a city that's both very real for the migrant, especially the black migrant, and very unreal. So the kinds of loneliness, to go to issues of race and blackness, obviously, they are lonely as a group because they were colonial migrants. They had imagined the mother country was going to embrace them and welcome them. But in fact, what happened was, They became alienated. They didn't really know at first why they were alienated. And there's a very good scene in the novel where Galahad, who's christened Sir Galahad when he arrives in London, he's just a ordinary man from the Caribbean named Henry Oliver. He's reborn in London, if you like, by the group mythology, is going out for the first time. And he he strides about like a lord as if he's in Trinidad in a small place where it's sunny, and he suddenly realizes, he's standing outside a tube station, that he's absolutely terrified that the sun in the sky doesn't look anything like any sun he's ever seen before. And he's alone. He's alone in this huge metropolis. And he hasn't got any money, and he hasn't got really anywhere to live. And then later again, you have that, that whole issue of loneliness, again represented through Galahad, as the colonial going to Piccadilly to see Eros, you know, he's excited, he's taking, going to meet a girl and then he meets a, a child who, you know, who looks at him aghast because he's black and then later when he goes home, he looks at his hand and says, what is, it's you that's causing all this bods oration. So it's kind of a loneliness that's kind of almost um both individual in terms of these individual characters who can't find work, who are broke, who'd expected to come to the real world when in fact they're in an unreal world but also this broader sense of race and recognising that as a kind of ethical loneliness.
0: Some of the characters seem more successful than others at navigating their new world. And one, for example, is the elderly Aunt Tanti, who I loved as a character, who manages to persuade, for example, a London grocery shop owner into opening a line of credit for her, which is something that has been common practice for her in the West Indies, but not so common in London, Um, And you've described the novel in your introduction to the sort of most recent edition, but elsewhere as well, as um, a colonisation in reverse. I wondered if you might say a bit more about that idea.
6: Yeah, I mean, I suppose going back to the whole issue of language, it's language and culture, of course, and the language makes the culture. Um, Tanti very much is colonising that area in reverse and trying to establish customs that were part of her much smaller world in Trinidad and or Jamaica. I mean, it, I think the colonisation in reverse idea, though, goes much, much more broadly than that in the sense that um, there's a very famous Louise Bennett poem, which is about, you know, which begins, what an awful news, Miss Matty, my heart going to burst. Jamaican people coming, colonising England in reverse. And that's where, the, you know, I got the line from. Um, it's a ballad. And it's about, it's a kind of humorous ballad about, look, look at all these people, everyone's worried, and, and we still have this now, all these immigrants coming in, you know, they're worried about them, but the joke is actually they're going to turn Britain into something else, which they have done, of course. Um, so he's kind of talking about how the language colonizes the city and what he does through creating these stories, through creating this Caribbean vernacular, literary vernacular, is to recreate the city through the eyes of the new people that are living in it. And, of course, that kind of reinvention and recreation and reimagining of the city is absolutely critical to their survival. So that's really what I was kind of getting at. And I suppose with Tanti and what you can buy in the grocery shops, it's like, you know, what you can buy in Deptford now, what you can buy in Brixton. You know, she was making sure she got the things she wanted to buy, what she wanted to eat. And... People often felt this had only happened post the Second World War and post the period when you know so-called black migrants were invited in to rescue the country from the degradation after the Second World War. But of course, many of these things were already happening during the war when many black soldiers and Asian soldiers were fighting for the British and also well, well before, even in the First World War, there were curry shops, for example, in London. So Britain was already being colonised in reverse. It was just already, it was a kind of double, always a double relationship between what was abroad and what was home.
0: That was Sushela Nasta. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude Project, generously supported by the Wellcome Trust and hosted by Queen Mary, University of London. It was presented by me, Heta Howes, and produced by Natalie Steed. If you want to hear more episodes, just search for Solitude's Queen Mary on SoundCloud, or to find our website. There you can discover much more about our project, read our blog posts on Solitude during the pandemic, and on many other topics.